from the Three Story Method Podcast Network. This is the Serial Fiction Show. I'm Christine Daigle. And I'm J.P. Reinbush. Welcome to the Writer's Serial Fiction Show. This is a companion podcast to the Reader's Serial Fiction Show. If you haven't listened to today's story, we'd encourage you to pause and go listen to episode one of the companion podcast first. We can only play half the episode, so if you like what you hear, check out the full episode free on Vela. The link to the podcast and the episode are in the show notes. All right, Christine, how has your how's your week been? My week has been uh, busy, which is always good. I like to be busy. I know we're both pretty excited about this upcoming launch of Kindle Vela. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. So how has your week been going? I've been focusing a lot on revisions with my co-author project, but this Vela serialized fiction stuff has definitely sparked a little fire in me to uh, see what I can do over in this world. Yeah, it's been a nice, shiny distraction for me, too, from some other projects. So I'm excited about that. It's been a lot of fun. The energy behind it has has been a great kick in the butt for me to just gear up. I think, you know, when I'm not working on the day job, it's mostly been writing stuff eat, breathe, sleep all day and night. <laughs> yeah, I I find this uh, format a suitable side, I won't say side project, but equivalent project uh, in association with my co-writer project, just because it's totally different. It's a new new place to play in for me. I know it's existed for a while, but for me, it's new. Yeah, and, and I know there are other platforms, but this one really just caught some attention. And I think given people who haven't gotten into serial fiction, a real way in or a way that they can see themselves doing this, I think it's going to be a fun experiment. I think there are other platforms, but I think that this one, we're not really sure what to expect. So we're not sure what reader expectations are going to be. We're not sure really about word count. I know traditionally serial readers prefer scenes about the 1500 to 2000 word range. So we're not really sure what the expectations are going to be. We're not sure what audience participation is going to look like. As of right now, there is not commenting available in Vela. So we don't know if that's going to change in the future. I do. I think it's going to be a lot of fun to play around with and just kind of see what can happen. Yeah, definitely. And I think that that's part of the reason why you wanted to start this podcast was just to kind of get a vibe from other authors to get that feel as to like, what is, where's your mindset on this serialized fiction? And I really like that we definitely started with Jay Thorne as our our first go-to for serialized fiction, because I think he has a really fun approach to it that it's a little bit more of a reserved approach than some of the other authors that I've been listening to. And maybe that's just because he's a little bit more seasoned. Maybe it's just because he he's not going to be rampant and raring to dive right into serialized fiction, but he just is ready to see what, what kind of waters that will be like. So I think our episode today will be really uh, beneficial to listeners. Yeah, I think so too. And yeah, part of the reason that I just wanted to start this podcast is because when I was looking for podcasts on serial fiction, I didn't find any. So I said, well, I guess we better do it then so we can all learn together. Definitely. And I think that we both have that mindset of like, how can we talk about craft and, and as a community as opposed to kind of doing this all alone? 
So I'm so excited for today's episode and all the ones to come. I am too. And I definitely think, especially in the indie community, that community support is so important for all of us to learn together and support each other so that we can all be successful. Yeah. Did you want to talk about the cereal that you're working on at all? (laughs) (laughs) That's my my panic laugh uh, if you want to, you know, enjoy that. I have... Uh, so many ideas. I cannot pick one. I do have a project that I have been working on since the start of this year that I think I'm going to adjust to serialized fiction. It's kind of a, a fun urban fantasy. I guess you'd maybe attribute it similar to Harry Dresden and maybe a little bit of like Bright from Netflix. So I think that's the direction I want to go with it. I'm leaving it very vague because I don't know what I'm doing yet. So how about you? I don't, that sounds great though. I love the Will Smith, Jim Butcher combo. That sounds like so much fun. I would love to read that. So I definitely hope you do that. I've been getting started on it, working with a co-writer, Stuart Sternberg. We've been working on two serials because we're not really sure what this market is going to want. So we were thinking, you know, kind of in that, young adult, new adult crossover range. I'm thinking it's going to be a little bit of a younger readership. So kind of that upper YA or crossover into adult. Looking at doing a sci-fi serial that is basically a portal opens and invisible beings come through and invade and a social misfit has to stop them. So that's going to be kind of fun. And we've been working on a horror serial as well where the main character is a little bit older, he's about 20, and guardian to his teenage sisters, and has just been working to keep his family together, but that gets complicated when a demon invades his hometown. So that's what we have been working on, and it's very fun. We've done about 10 episodes are finished on one and almost 10 on the other, and then it's just kind of seeing what pace can we keep, because we want to have a consistent rollout when we start releasing episodes. So probably committing to weekly. I don't know if we can do more than that. I guess it depends when Vela actually launches and and how much we have finished by then, but it's been a lot of fun. Yeah. I got the chance to read the first episodes of both of yours and I'm so excited for you. Yay. Yeah, definitely something uh, to look forward to. Thank you. So this is our first episode and we are part of the Three Story Method Network. We use a lot of terms uh, that may not be familiar with the rest of the crowd. So do we want to go over those quickly before we jump into our interview? Yeah, I definitely think we should. We're just kind of using this to look at scene construction. So we're just using basics from three-story method. You don't need to be familiar with three-story method at all to get benefit from this podcast. But if you want to learn more about it, there's a link in the show notes. So let's just look at the main terms that we're going to be using. And there's not a lot of them. The first Mm -hmm. one is armature, which is basically just a glorified version of theme. Yeah, I really like using the term armature because it kind of specifies what we mean by theme. And this also comes from Brian McDonald in uh, You Are a Storyteller podcast, as well as several of his books. But the the ultimate definition of armature is like kind of the skeleton or the bones behind something that you kind of articulate and fill in with the rest of it. I really like to view it as uh, a proof uh, if you were in the, the scientific world or kind of a hypothesis that you have. And then all of your scenes are constructed around that hypothesis to prove or disprove that proof. 
So whereas like we're taught in high school, theme is about love or or something very vague. This is more the the love of friends and family holds more power. Something along those lines, where where it's almost a sentence, something that you can continuously prove and state through your scenes. Exactly. So that's one thing we'll be looking at. The other thing we'll be looking at is character motivations, looking at goals, looking at the wants and the needs of the different characters, the protagonists, the antagonists, as well as the lies that the characters tell themselves and how those are challenged. Yeah. And with with wants and needs, wants are usually like the superficial versions of what, what people want uh, in a scene. So, you know, it's how I present the the motivation that I may have, whereas the need is the the more deep meaning or the the deeper need of the character in order to feel fulfilled. Yeah, it's more of an internal need. So we're going to be looking at that. And then in terms of scene construction, we'll be looking at what's called the three C's. So it's a little bit different for serial fiction than it is in novel length fiction. But in general, the three C's are the conflict, the what is the character facing that is pushing them out of their status quo or pushing them out of whatever their normal is at the time, the choice. So what is the decision that they have to make based on that conflict? And usually there are two choices that are of equal weight. So either both are going to be bad for them or both are going to be good for them or one is going to be good for them, but bad for someone else. So really looking at a choice that We'll just leave the reader saying, gosh, if I was in that character's shoes, I don't know what I would do. So those are the kind of choices that we're looking at, as well as the consequence of that choice. So once that character makes a decision and takes action on that decision, what is the consequence of that? And we'll be looking at a fourth C as well for serial fiction, which is cliffhangers, which are so important in serial fiction. Yeah. And, uh, and to these three Cs don't have to be in every scene. And sometimes there may be multiple choices, but really it's it's a, a framework or a starting off point. And then, you know, you kind of adhere it from there. So we'll probably run into a lot of scenes in the future where maybe the consequences dropped off, but we'll, we'll definitely bring it up and kind of show writers what that would look like uh, so that we can discuss it and kind of help you grow as a writer. Exactly. So should we bring on our guest? Oh, uh, yeah, we should. All right, let's do it. Yep. All right. So we are here with Jay Thorne, also known as RJ Queen. Uh, <laughs> and we are discussing this retro sci-fi serial. It's the end of the world as she knows it. Yes. So we both came and approached this. We read uh, the portion that you sent us and we kind of broke down the armature motivations, kind of like our take on the scene. And we were just kind of uh, curious on discussing the scene structure both from your perspective and kind of like how we interpreted it, just to kind of get more discussion into how we, how we as writers can build scenes like this. Yeah. Love it. Sounds like fun. Cool. So I guess to start, let's talk about armature, which is, you know, the concept of theme it's, I like to view it as uh, the scientific proof or hypothesis that you would make in a scene that you are then trying to prove. So you know, whereas themes are like love and feelings, uh, an armature would be like, love is the answer that will save you from annihilation. And then you have to prove why that is your proof. So I guess I'll start since I'm still talking. <laughs> I viewed this really as uh, armature that you stick up for what you believe in, no matter the consequences. 
I kind of got that vibe with, you know, a character who clearly did not want to interact with the the bullies until she was kind of forced to. And then she did what she had to do. Yeah, that's that's uh, great. That's because that's kind of exactly what I would I would say, too. You know, this this first episode is really all about establishing Janie as the protagonist and and giving the reader some idea who she is and 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 um, what she values and uh, and that that's definitely it. I mean, all you know, all the way down to the way she talks to the assistant vice principal. Um, you know, it's it's not always easy standing up for what you think is right, and but sometimes you have to do it no matter what the consequences are. And and we know, like you know, the the sort of minor cliffhanger at the end of this one is, you know, what is she going to say to her parents when she has to tell them she's been suspended? But like, she wasn't thinking that far ahead uh, in the situation. So what do you think about uh, motivations for Janie? What were the motivations you had in mind for her behavior and why she acts the way that she does? She's, she's definitely got a, a chip on her shoulder. She is, she's a social outcast. Her, 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 social group would technically be called the burnouts and in the 80s the burnouts were just the kids who smoked pot and drank and you know had a reputation for not really doing well in school not not having a lot of ambition but but Janie's not entirely like that like she's she's thoughtful and she's empathetic and she's articulate but yet she identifies with this outsider culture and i think it's that that sort of complexity with her that um that i remember i i mean i i wasn't I wasn't exactly like Janie. There are elements of Janie in me, but I've written enough now that I've sort of written myself out of most protagonists. But there's a lot in Janie that I admire, and there's things that, there's qualities that she has that I wish I would have had at, at that age. So yeah, I don't know if that answers the question or not, but. Yeah, and I, I think we were kind of speculating that these motivations are stemming possibly from, from, from a wound, like strict or abusive parents. And it seems like she has a need to exercise control onto Jason and in the way that she rebels. Was that something that you were thinking about when you were constructing the scene? Yeah, for sure. I think you're, you're very perceptive in picking up that thing up with the parents that, you know, her, as we get deeper into it, her, her mom is not a step, a Stepford wife, but she's sort of that, that glazed over like prescription med haze, you know, not really involved with what her kids are doing, but like won't be late to the bake sale. And and that like bothers Janie, you know, and and I think that we're also going to meet Janie's brother throughout this. Janie's brother is more more of the stereotypical good kid, you know. He's popular. He's an ath- athlete. He gets good grades. And so even within her own family, she feels like a black sheep, and that's probably a wound that she's been carrying around her entire life. And when we talk about protagonists and antagonists of the scene, and then the overall story, and their sort of their wants and needs, what what would you say was uh, her her wants and needs in this scene, and then also the antagonist wanted? I would say she wants to just get out of school or life as quickly as possible. Like she just wants she doesn't want to engage. Like that's that's definitely what she wants. But I think what she needs is she needs to feel a sense of empowerment. She needs to feel as though she does have some control of her life. There are some things. I mean, she's in a in a very large public high school that's very systematic and and regulated and regimented and she's a creative artistic kid who loves music and she she's pushing up against that so i think uh you know on the surface like i said it looks like she just wants out but i think she she really needs to have some form of control 
As far as the antagonist goes, that's an interesting question because I'm still developing the force of antagonism for the whole series. A lot of that hasn't revealed itself to me. I would say there isn't necessarily an antagonist in this scene, although there are several characters who sort of channel that force, but I think it's more the system in general. You know, it's it's the social system that is, you know, putting the 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 jocks, you know, above everyone else. It's it's the school system who doesn't value Janie as a divergent thinker. They just want, you know, kids to repeat things back to them. So I think it's the system here is more a, a force of antagonism. And when and it's a little harder to define wants and needs with the force of antagonism, but I would say it's more of just a general desire to keep the status quo, is to to not change things, to keep things the way they are. And someone like Janie's a threat to the status quo. Yeah, I definitely caught that vibe that, you know, the way that Janie wants things is almost she wants to check out. She wants to just be away from this situation. But you can definitely get that vibe that what she really needs is to be in control of her own life and to kind of control the uh, or at least have a sense of justice around, you know, those that are around her. Yes. Janie is uh, very black and white when it comes to justice. And I think that's going to come out too. Like you're either with her or against her. Like there's, there's no gray area for her. Yeah. That's a very teenage thing is to have that very black or white yes. sense of justice. It's either right or it's wrong. It's right or wrong. So I just wanted to talk a little bit about the conflict and the choices in this scene. So I think JP and I saw it a little bit differently where I saw kind of one overarching, I think JP saw more than one and I think they're both valid. And I think after JP kind of told me what he was thinking, I said, yeah, I see that too. So I had kind of seen the, the conflict. It started when she got stuck in the circle with the kids. And then she had to decide whether she was going to verbally jump in. And then that escalated to a physical jump in, which then got her hauled to the vice principal's office and, and suspended. So the conflict was really about, am I going to stick up for this injustice? And she does. And then the conflict obviously is that she gets suspended and she's going to be in big trouble with the old man if she doesn't figure out something to do. And I think JP had a more nuanced a vision of what was going in the scene. If you want to talk about that, JP. Sure. Um, so I saw it as two scenes, the lockers and then the assistant vice principal's office. So um, first scene, if we look at conflict, kind of like the moment in which something shifts in the, the world that they're in that kind of takes them out of the everyday. Before it, she's very focused on she wants to leave. She wants to get out of here. but. Pretty much the moment that Jason blocks her from leaving is the conflict. It's the moment that she can't leave. She doesn't really get a choice anymore. And then her her ultimate choice in this locker scene is, is the need of the nads, uh, to be honest. Because at that point, she's making a choice to, to be physically violent in order to end a conflict, escalating it to an act of violence in, in a way to end it. And the consequences pretty much immediately right after that when the uh, vice principal um, grabs him and drags him off or drags her off. Then the second scene I, I saw was the, the office. Uh, we have kind of the moment where the vice principal brings up, why did you assault? Uh, kind of using that, that term as assault brought her out of like, this is just a normal moment in the office with the vice principal to like, wait a minute, we're bringing up assault. Like she seemed very upset about, you know, whoa, this is too much for me. And then the choice was to lie and say that she was going to tell her father 
uh, that she was suspended because uh, she wasn't going to. And then the consequence is the panic and the plan on how to perpetuate that lie until she really has to, you know, face the facts. Yeah, you're both right. <laughs> I mean, I, I think you could, um, you could certainly, those certainly work um, from both your perspectives. I think if I, if I really wanted to get technical about it, I think it probably is two scenes. And I, rem- I vaguely remember, because it's been a few years since I wrote this, this particular episode, um, but I, I vaguely remember thinking like, I could scene break it and just leave it the way it was. Um, but my general rule of thumb is change of location or change of time. And this was a bit of a, a gray area because it's not really a change of time. It's very sequential when, when the principal um, grabs her, but it does change location. So I was like, well, yeah, technically it's definitely two scenes and, and there are de- three, three C's for each of those, but they flow really well together. So I just kind of, I kind of left it together. And I think it's one of those things where, you know, f- for, as an author thinking about the reader experience, I didn't want to put the three asterisks in between there because I felt like that would break the flow. And so, so I left it. So like I said, in a way, I think you're both right. Excellent. So this scene works really well. And I, I think that choosing to put those scenes together, it also gives you a very nice length for a serial. Cause I think it's running about 15, 1600 words, which is, is kind of the sweet spot for uh, serials in the past, as we know from what reader lengths they prefer. I was just wondering if you would have any other kind of advice for writers who are writing serials or interested in writing serials about scene construction, how to include conflict, cliffhangers, and other things to help really make them write a great serial. Definitely. I am, um, if, I don't know if you guys can tell, but I am really excited about the serialized storytelling. I know you guys are too. Obviously, you wouldn't have this podcast. I'm really excited about it because I think it culminates for me. It's a, it's um, it brings everything together, everything that I like and everything that I think I'm good at. So I, I really, I really think my, my wheelhouse is scene work. Um, and when I work with clients, I mean, I, I obviously do full manuscripts, but I feel like the scene work is where I really shine. The 1500 words is like my ideal scene length. Like I know there are other genres where you can write two and 3000 word scenes, but like for me, 1500 words from a writer, it feels like a good punch. Like I got out everything I wanted to say in, in, in the amount of space that I had to do it. And I've become a huge fan of serialized TV since the Netflix generation started. I mean, I was just telling a friend of mine, you know, I used to watch two and three movies a weekend back when you had to go to the Blockbuster and, and, and rent the cassette. But ever since um, you know, Netflix has, has sort of re-energized serial storytelling, I, I watch probably 90% of what I watch is now serialized shows. And I, f- and I love it. I love it. It's so immersive. Like I, I love, um, you know, with a movie, you get an hour and a half to two hours and, and it's done. And yet with serialized TV, I I get to be immersed in the world. I, I re- they really get to expand on the characters. And so when this opportunity came up, I was like, oh my gosh, this is a, this is a no-brainer. And so one of the, one of the ways I'm, I'm adjusting is, um, this is even different than writing short stories. And uh, I, I, I'm working on a three-story method book on scenes and short stories, and this is going to be part of it. So you guys are getting like the first exclusive on this. The, I'm going to modify the three Cs a little bit for serialized storytelling. And I think they're going to be conflict, choice, cliffhanger. And uh, because I really feel like in, in 
for for Vela and for serialized storytelling in general, you almost need a cliffhanger at the end of every single episode. And that would wear out, that would wear out a reader in a novel, but this is not a novel. Um, so I think the trick is not do you have a cliffhanger, but can you create several different flavors of cliffhanger so it's not the same cliffhanger? But I think you gotta have a cliffhanger. I, I think there has to be a, a last line or two where the reader's like, oh my God, I have to know what happens next. I don't think you can wrap it up cleanly the way you can with a consequence in a typical scene or a short story. So I, I would say, like, if there's one takeaway I would give um, other authors who are starting to dabble in this, and take this for what it's worth, I'm still at the very beginning of this journey as well, but I really feel like the three C's with the, with the conflict choice cliffhanger is, is a great way to frame, frame the reader experience, as long as you're not relying on the same type of cliffhanger every single time. I would definitely agree. So uh, nitty gritty question. Uh, you had mentioned in the, the Reader's Podcast kind of your, your formula as to how you're approaching um, serialized fiction, or at least how you're planning on doing it before the release. If you are willing to, what is your idealized release of each episode and then plan uh, planning ahead for what you are going to release on Bella? Right. Uh, based on what I know now uh, from the market and what I think is reasonable for me, I know I can commit to a 1500 word scene once a week and I'm going to, I'm going to release two serials. So 3000 words a week. I, I know that's reasonable for me. I, I had to start there and I would say to other authors, that's probably the most important question you have to face right now, because assume you publish whatever you're going to publish in the beginning and assume it's really well received. You got to follow it up. I'm assuming you want to, right? So you have to be, you have to think about success rather than failure. So I'm thinking, best case scenario, I put both these serials out and readers love them both. And I, I, I'm going to keep writing in them. My plan would be to write uh, an episode a week. I would probably do that for 10 consecutive weeks. That would be a season. And then I would probably take off a little bit of time, not a lot, maybe a couple weeks to kind of start thinking about big uh, mile markers for, for the next season and then, and then start again. Um, I will say though, asterisk on this is that I'm going to be paying very close attention to these first 10 episodes on both serials. Um, I don't necessarily just want to write something to write. Like I've, I'm, I'm long past that point in my author journey, but I also, uh, you know, so I, I want to make sure that if I'm writing something that the people are reading it, and if they're reading it, I'm going to keep writing it. But I'm also trying to keep myself from getting too far ahead because I have this tendency to get really excited about stuff and, and do a ton of work before the market's given me a response on it. So I, I said, okay, I'm going to have those first 10 written. I'm going to stack them up and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put them out a week apart. And then I'm going to see, I'm going to look and see what happens and then decide if I want to move into season two. And then when, if and then, and when I do, I'll have a plan for how that's going to roll out. And on top of the, the release schedule, what does your editing look like? Now, I know that you're much farther along in the process. You've experienced a lot through editing. But how does this look in difference to uh, novels when you release novels? It's definitely leaner. <laughs> I think it's the nature of it. Uh, I, I debated. I, I, I'm almost certainly going to use an editor. I, I, I have someone who edited the first three episodes because I published them in a different way prior to, to Vela. And so that was just part of the agreement I had with him 
for for that thing. So so they were edited. But I, I would say moving forward, you know, I definitely want to have them edited, but I certainly can't resource them the way I can a novel. Like I can't take six weeks to do revisions and be thoughtful about editor comments. Like it's everything's gonna have to happen in, in a week. And and so um I think the short stories I've been writing uh this year in 2021 have been good practice for that. Cause I, I don't have the luxury of sitting around and being a perfectionist. I gotta write them, get them to the editor, revise them, format them, publish, move on to the next one. And I think I'm gonna take that attitude towards Vela. And and I think too, readers are gonna be much more forgiving, at least I hope they are, um, than they would be for novels. I think things like, you know, typos and and punctuation errors, like those are when you're writing once a week on a tight deadline like that, those things are going to happen. And, I, and I'm hoping and I have faith in, in the Vela readers that they're going to know that. And, and that's why I'm kind of hoping they're a different audience than uh, the KDP reader now, because uh, you know, they, they certainly like to point out all the errors in the reviews now. Awesome. And then the last thing I had was more of a statement slash compliment, but I still wanted to bring it up because I'm a loudmouth about LGBTQA stuff. So uh, I noticed when I was reading this that you did use a derogatory term uh, for the LGBTQA community. And I, at first, was like a little hesitant upon reading it because I'm very used to seeing that in Stephen King's work. And I never found it holding any value. However, when you brought it up in here, you would always follow it up with some sort of a comment that almost gave it no more power. Uh, I don't know if this was intentional or not. But, you know, you would bring it up and then you'd say, there it is again. And an insult that kept on giving. Why did it give the jocks and burnouts think that New Wave was gay? Like you kept kind of diffusing the power of the word. And I just found that so like commendable that even though I personally don't like that word, I just really appreciated that you kind of you did a thing where you kind of just diffused the power of it, which was great, in my opinion. So I just wanted to bring that up. And thank you. Well, thank you, JP. Uh, I, I, you probably know that I, I don't use any word lightly. Like any word you read in here, like it's there for a reason. And I shared when Rachel and I were writing this, um, you know, and and Rachel's lesbian. Most most people know she has a wife, and and um, I didn't use that slur at first. I used something else, and she's like, "No, no, you got to use it." She's like, "That's what it was at the time, and that's what I heard." And and I thought. That, and, and part of me, being a historian, I also have this fear that like, I don't want to whitewash history. Like, I don't want to, I don't want to portray the eighties in a way that wasn't how they were. Like there was a lot of racism and there was, there was a lot of homophobia and, and the word you're referring to was one of my most hated words. And my friends use it all the time. And I, and it, it's it, to this day, it's one of the words that bothers me more than any other. And I was like, then that's why I have to put it in here. Like I have to. I have to take away all the power of that word immediately because it's going to come up in this world and and there are going to be story elements where it's going to it's going to play a factor it's not you know it's it's there for a really important reason and the only way I could justify doing that was to completely chop it off at the knees and be like this is how stupid this is like so I'm glad that you interpreted it that way because I I could see I could see a, a less careful reader being upset by that. And that's a risk I'm willing to take. And, and I think I'm willing to take it because I think if you read it in context, you'll, you'll understand the way I'm using it. And, and hopefully that comes across. Yeah, I, I definitely got that vibe. Hopefully others will too. <laughs>
Yeah, and I definitely, you know, us being of similar age, that was something that was just so common that, you know, people would just say without a second thought. And, and yeah, I know sometimes we, we think nostalgia is great, but we tend to put a positive spin in it and, and sometimes forget the things that were not so great. So that I'm glad that you brought some respect and some challenge to that. So thank you. Thank you. Our thanks today to Jay Thorne for letting us break down their episode. Finally, we want to thank you for listening to the inaugural season of the Writer's Serial Fiction Show. If you know someone who might enjoy the show, send them your favorite episode link. And if you want to leave an Apple podcast review, we read all of them and use your suggestions. We'd love to hear from you. Check out SerialFictionShow.com and leave us a comment. And thanks. We'll see you next time for another Serial Fiction episode. And that's a wrap. We did it at the same time. Woo! We did it. <laughs>